Episode 16 of All Those Things Revealed Adam bowed his head and began his confession. When she had traveled enough distance from the village for no one to see us, I came upon her again. I told her that I knew of an old path that we could use to return to my cottage without being seen, and then I could help her. I told her that I had been the cause of her misfortune. I had informed Father McMahon of her nuptials, and I was the reason you were not at home on that fateful day. I begged her to forgive me. I begged her to let me help her. She agreed to come with me. I believed that she did not know what else to do. She was overwhelmed by her misfortune. When we returned, we were not seen by anyone. She rested in my family's cottage until nightfall. I gave her clothing and money so that she could travel to her family in Desert O'Day. I told her to wait there until she heard from you as I was leaving the next day for Ennis to inform you of what had happened. She asked if she could accompany me to Ennis. I told her that if you had wanted her to come to Ennis, that you would have taken her. A priest woman could not be presented to a bishop superior. Her face flushed when I said this. She was quiet for some time, and then she asked for paper and a pen so that she could write a letter, Adam concluded. Adam looked down at the letter and cleared his throat. Father Brady closed his eyes again as Adam began to read. My dearest love, I have returned to my mother's house. I will wait for you. If I need to, I will wait for the rest of my days. Return to me, but only if you will return as the same man with whom I took my vows and fasted my hands. If you cannot be this man, then do not return to me, for the sight of you would cause me too much pain. I cannot let you turn our love into something shameful. We shared a bond of love. We share many things. All those things are ours. Do not abandon what is ours or the bond that exists between us. I will wait for you and cling to the hope that you will return to me. Your faithful one, Una. Father Brady opened his eyes. She is alive, he said. Adam bowed his head. I told you that she had perished. I was frightened that you would father a child and marry Una. And then, Adam said before Father Brady interrupted him, Una and I are married. And now I have committed bigamy, Father Brady said. I blanched when I heard this and stepped back. I was overjoyed that Una was still alive, but I was appalled that my union was an act of bigamy. At the sound of my footsteps, Father Brady and Adam both looked in my direction. Father Brady's eyes were sympathetic. Adam looked at me with shame and regret. You have done a terrible thing, Adam, but you do have a chance to redeem yourself, I said. They both looked at me, but neither spoke a word. Go to her. Bring her back, I said sharply. Adam looked at Father Brady. She is alive, Father Brady said again. He closed his eyes. Go now, I said. Adam got up and left the room. I heard the front door of the cottage close. I knew that he was racked with guilt and that he would do as I demanded. As I looked at my wasting husband, I wasn't sure if he would ever again see his beloved Una. Godspeed, Adam, I said under my breath.
The next morning, Mrs. Brady woke me early. She told me to get dressed because she needed me to run an errand for her. I was surprised because it was still quite early. I washed and dressed quickly. As I did so, I began to feel pains seize me. They extended from my womb to my lower back. The pains reminded me of my previous monthly bleedings, but they were far worse. I slid onto the floor and felt the pain grip my womb again. I cradled my arms around my waist and soon the pain subsided. I had never before felt such pain. As I stood and tried to steady myself, I noticed the blood that had pooled onto the floor. It was then that I felt the blood soaking through my clothes. The enormity of my situation finally struck me as the realization of my horror set in. I had lost the baby that I had carried for so many weeks. Mrs. Brady returned. As soon as she saw the blood, she rushed to me. She helped me onto the bed. In a short amount of time, she had washed me and helped me change into clean bedclothes. She put me back into bed. She stroked my forehead. This was all too much for you, my dear, she said. She gave me a reassuring smile. I smiled faintly in return. If you have family in Athlone, I can help you find them, she added. No, I am your daughter. I will stay here with you, I said. She leaned forward and kissed the top of my forehead. Yes, you are. Now get some rest, she said. She left the room and I watched her. I knew then that even if I had dozens of relations in Athlone, I still would have insisted on staying with her. My mind wandered as I lay in bed. I wondered what errand Mrs. Brady had wished for me to do. I thought of possibilities until I had exhausted myself and fallen into a fitful sleep. I woke to the sound of a familiar voice. As I raised myself, I realized that I was not dreaming. I heard Shannon's distinctive voice. He sounded as if he were arguing with Mrs. Brady. I listened carefully, but I had trouble discerning their words. Then I heard Mrs. Brady say very clearly, Shannon, Costanza is going to be all right. You can see her when you return. I heard Shannon leave. Mrs. Brady entered my room. She sat on the edge of the bed. How are you feeling, Costanza? She said. I will be all right, I said. Mrs. Brady looked at me, but she averted her eyes as she did so. Shannon just spent some time speaking with my son. My son asked for him earlier, she said. I did not say anything. Shannon wishes to see you, she added. I would like to see him. I just heard him leave. When is he returning? I asked. Soon. He went to fetch Father McMahon, she said in a quiet voice. My bottom lip trembled. I see, I said. I reached out and squeezed Mrs. Brady's hand. She finally looked into my eyes. We are losing him, she said. I knew if Mrs. Brady was convinced of this, that it was true. I grasped her hand more tightly. We sat together for several minutes. Neither of us spoke. She finally let go of my hand and quietly left the room. It took a full hour before Shannon returned with Father McMahon. I heard them enter the cottage. Father McMahon was greeted by Mrs. Brady. I heard his footsteps as he made his way to Father Brady's room. I got out of bed. 
I still felt weak from having lost so much blood, but I was determined to show myself. I did not want Father McMahon to guess that I had been unwell. He might guess the reason. I knew that I was Mrs. Brady's daughter, and I owed her this much. If it became known that I had miscarried, then the issue of her land would become pressing again. I had just finished dressing when I heard a knock on my door. I was surprised because Father McMahon had not been with my husband for long. I took a deep breath and opened the door. Shannon stood at my door. He looked at me with concern. Why are you out of bed? He whispered. You knocked on my door, I said. He forced a small smile. Are you always so stubborn? He asked. I returned his smile and nodded. I stepped back and walked to my bed. I sat on the edge of my bed. Shannon hesitated for a moment before joining me. I thought of the times that he had held my hand. He did not reach for it now as we sat close to one another. He looked ahead as he spoke. I know. I know everything, he said. He hesitated before he continued. Father Brady summoned me today and he told me everything. He looked at me. I searched his face for revulsion or disgust. I found none. It was then that he reached for my hand. Father Brady knew that I wished to marry you. He also knew that your family would not allow it. They were too ashamed of you to allow anyone to know the truth. Father Brady told them that you had told him of your condition. They believed that Father Brady would not reveal your shame because he was so full of shame himself, he said. Shannon looked intently at me. I blinked away tears and looked away. He did not let go of my hand. Instead, he reached for my other hand. Your family should not have been ashamed of you. Father Brady knew that. That is why he wanted to protect you. He did not protect Una. Our village heaped shame upon her, shame that she did not deserve. Shame was heaped upon you too, shame that you did not deserve. He did not save Una, but he believed that he could save you. His marriage to you was an atonement. When he left the priesthood and married you, he knew that he was dying and he believed that Una was gone. He believed that he would protect you and your unborn child with this one act, he added. But I am no longer with child, I said. Shannon looked intently at me. Mrs. Brady told me that you were unwell. She did not tell me that, his voice trailed off. Yes, it happened earlier today, I said, my eyes cast down. Do not speak to anyone of this, do you understand, he asked. I looked into his eyes. Yes, I replied. There is one other thing that Father Brady mentioned, Shannon said. What is that, I asked. He made me promise that I would marry you, he said, smiling. I looked down. I wasn't sure what I should say because I was a wife and my husband lay dying in the next room. Then I thought of Una. She was his wife. I was his atonement. I looked up and met Shannon's gaze. You shouldn't break a promise, I said. Shannon leaned over and kissed my cheek. He got up and left the room. When the door opened, I heard Father McMahon's voice. I knew that he had just given Father Brady the last rites, so I should speak with him, but I could not bring myself to do so. I stayed in my room. I heard the muffled sounds of Mrs. Brady's voice. Soon I heard Shannon's voice. 
The front door of the cottage closed, and the muffled voices were suddenly outside of my window. I carefully opened it so that I could eavesdrop. Thank you for giving Father Brady the last right, Shannon said. You still call him Father Brady, Father McMahon said. I always have, Shannon said. Why did you wish to speak with me, Father McMahon asked. Earlier today, I spoke with Father Brady. He asked something of me, Shannon said. He extracted a promise from me. Do you need me to release you from this obligation? Father McMahon asked. No, I do not want to be released, Shannon said. If you don't mind me asking, what did you promise him? Father McMahon asked. I promised him that I would take care of Costanza and that I would marry her, Shannon said. I closed my eyes and held my breath. And you wish to marry her? Father McMahon asked. Yes, I do. She is a worthy woman. I believe that I can make her happy, he replied. She could be with child. If she is not, then this land belongs to your cousin Adam, Father McMahon said. My cheeks burned. I hoped that Shannon would not take an exception to Father McMahon's coarse and thinly veiled accusation. Yes, I understand, Shannon calmly replied. It is not conventional to be discussing this with me when she is not yet a widow, Father McMahon said. I agree, but sadly, it is rather certain that she soon will be, he replied. Why did you make such a promise, young man? Father McMahon asked. I heard Shannon sigh. Father Brady knew that I wished to marry her, and he compelled her parents to convince her to marry him instead. Now that he believes that he is about to meet his maker, he is concerned for her. He knows that I will take care of her, and I will do so gladly, he said. I see. If your cousin passes, you can marry her when she is finished mourning, Father McMahon said. I slid down my wall and drew my knees up. I pressed my face against my knees. I dreaded to hear any more, but I could not pull myself away from the window. I believe that we should marry as soon as she becomes a widow, Shannon said. I heard Father McMahon clear his throat. I held my breath again. It would be more sensible, Shannon quickly added. Why is that, Shannon? Father McMahon asked with a hint of sarcasm in his voice. Why such urgency? It is not proper for a widow to mourn her husband? Father, their seed potatoes have not been planted, and they should have been planted weeks ago. Their sheep will need shearing soon. Their cottage has been neglected. There are only two women. They cannot manage alone, Shannon said. That is true. The older Mrs. Brady is frail. I don't believe the younger one has much experience doing such labor, Father McMahon said. I agree that it is proper for a widow to mourn her husband, but it is also proper that she does not sink into poverty and neglect if it can be easily avoided. I can care for her, he said. And what does she think of this? Does she wish to marry you? Have you spoken with her? Father McMahon asked. Before her family compelled her to marry my cousin, we spoke of such things. I have since made my intentions clear again. Father, she knows that I wish to marry her and take care of her. She was surprised when I spoke to her recently about such matters, since she is not yet a widow. 
I told her as delicately as I could that I felt a sense of urgency because of her situation. If we waited, it might be more proper, but it would not bode well for her or Mrs. Brady. Even if I did all that was necessary out of devotion to her before we married, they would still be without the income I can provide, Shannon said. Shannon sighed loudly. Tradition and propriety dictate that she should wait a lengthy period of time before she remarries, and tradition and propriety dictate that I cannot simply give her financial assistance. What am I to do? Shannon asked. Father McMahon chuckled. Her welfare is more important than the decorums of society. You are absolutely right. If she becomes a widow, I will marry the two of you as soon as you both wish to. I agree that such demand should not divide two people who wish to be together, Father McMahon said. I thought of Una as she was driven from the village and marveled at the irony and hypocrisy of his words. Thank you, Father, Shannon said. I carefully closed the window. The following day, I left my room and stayed in our cottage's main room. I was nervous and could not rest for a moment. Mrs. Brady was agitated, too, for the same reason. We were both waiting for her to return. Mrs. Brady was careful to conceal her agitation from her son, but I could sense it. Father Brady had steadily worsened and was no longer able to eat. He struggled to take in the tea and broth offered by Mrs. Brady. A weaker man would have already died. I knew why he clung to life. He, too, was waiting for her return. I knew that Adam had left two days prior and that he should have already reached Una. He had taken my parents' cart with Mr. Macy's permission. Even if he was repeatedly mired in mud, he could reach Desert O'Day and return in two or three days. It was only eight or nine hours to travel to Desert O'Day and another two hours in bad weather. He had left late in the morning. He would have rested the horse along the way for a few hours, and then he would have reached her late at night. I knew that if they had left the following morning, they could arrive very soon. I looked in the direction of Father Brady's room. I knew that he did not have much time. I began to calculate the travel time again in my mind. I carried a cool folded cloth into Father Brady's room. I saw that Mrs. Brady had fallen asleep. I walked to Father Brady's bedside and pressed the cool cloth against his warm forehead. He mouthed the words, thank you, and started to open his eyes. I laid the cloth on his forehead and squeezed his hand with my other hand. Mrs. Brady woke. I could feel her eyes on me. I looked at her. She gave me an approving look. She leaned forward. Do you think she will return tonight? She whispered. Yes, she will, Father Brady answered, surprising us both. I left the room and returned to the hearth. I sat near the fire and warmed my hands before adding more wood to the fire. I filled one of our larger kettles with water and hung it over the fire. I busied myself at the hearth and the hours passed. The main room slowly darkened. When the light from the fire was the only source of light in our cottage, I carried a candle to Mrs. Brady. I placed it on the chest nearest the bed. I returned with the blanket. 
As I covered Mrs. Brady, I managed to wake her despite my best efforts. Will you get us another candle, dear? she asked. I went to the main room to get another candle, and it was then that I heard the unmistakable sound of a horse's hooves outside of our cottage. I smiled to myself. Father Brady had been correct. I rushed to the front door and opened it. The night was dark, but the moon provided enough light for me to see Adam descend from the driver's seat of the cart. The door to the cart opened and Una emerged. She walked towards the cottage. I rushed outside and grabbed her hand. Without any explanation or greetings, I pulled her into the cottage. He is waiting for you, I said as I walked her to his room. We reached the door to his room. I dropped her hand and whispered, go to him. She entered the room and Mrs. Brady stood up. She walked to Una and embraced her. I heard Mrs. Brady whisper, we don't have long. Una went to the side of Father Brady's bed. She reached for one of his hands and held it. He opened his eyes and saw her before closing them again. Am I dreaming, he asked. No, I have come, she said. A faint smile was on his lips. Do you forgive me, he said in a hoarse whisper. Yes, of course, she said. I watched them. Una had returned to him, but I knew that he had returned to her too. I knew that all that he had promised her when their hands were fasted was everlasting. She knew it too. Her face was racked with grief, but now there was a serenity that had not been there until now. She had needed to hear his words to lift a stone off of her heart. He had needed for her to forgive him for his stone to be lifted. I also knew that the stone that had borne down on him had also anchored him to us. I was certain that Mrs. Brady was correct. We did not have long, and the time that remained belonged to Una. Mrs. Brady and I left the room. We took chairs near the hearth. Adam entered the cottage. He looked exhausted. Mrs. Brady looked at him with more compassion than contempt. She motioned towards a chair near the hearth. Adam seated himself. His eyes were tired. I could tell that he had not slept much since his confession to Father Brady. I made tea for the three of us, and we waited for Una to emerge from Father Brady's room. At least two hours passed before Una was at the door beckoning us. Mrs. Brady came first. Has his time come? she asked. Una nodded. I followed Mrs. Brady. Adam hesitated for a moment before he followed us. We all entered the small room and stood around Father Brady's bed. I looked at his face and wondered if he had already left us, but then a small sound escaped his lips. Una kneeled next to his bed and held one of his hands in her own. She motioned for me to follow suit. I went to the opposite side of the bed and reached for his other hand. I looked across his body at Una. She began to recite the Lord's Prayer, the Pater Noster, and we all joined her. Pater Noster, qui essen calis, sanctificetur nomen tuum. We said the remainder of the prayer in unison. We all fell quiet once we had finished. Then I heard a gasp from Father Brady. He whispered so faintly that I could barely hear his words. 
Ignasque Domine Verba Que Precipisti. Recognize, Lord God, these words which you command. I had heard the Lord's Prayer prayed many times, but I had never before heard these words spoken after the recitation of this prayer. I later learned that they were the last words spoken intentionally by the dying in a Celtic rite. I have never forgotten them. These words left him, and soon he left us. Una was the first to know. She fell over his body weeping. Her wails filled the room. I edged away and left the room. This sorrow was hers before it was mine. He was hers. He was always hers. 1840. Shannon's Cottage, Clonlara, Ireland. So does my father, but I am still Maureen Brady and not Maureen Maloney, Maureen asked. I nod. Yes, your da and I were married immediately. Father McMahon was true to his word. We told everyone that you were Father Brady's, so that we could hold on to this land, I say. Maureen stares ahead, but she is not looking at me. I know that she is taking all of this in, and that she is probably stunned. Grandmother Brady was Father Brady's ma, Maureen asks. Yes, your grandmother loved you more than life itself. Her name was Moya, which is Irish for Mary. We named you for her. Your name means Little Mary. You are hers as much as you are mine and your da's, I say. Maureen nods. And Una was... Maureen's voice trails off. Yes, she was my mother, Michal says. Then you should be Michal Brady, and that is your name, she says wistfully. The day after Father Brady passed away, my new mother said to me, Costanza, you are my heir, and you may do as you please. I knew that she was giving me her blessing to marry your da, but she was also giving me her blessing on another matter, I say. I stare at Michal. Maureen turns and stares at him, too. Did she ever tell you how our arrangement came to be, I ask? She told me some of it, he says with a smile. His smile broadens and he adds, I know that Mr. Maloney had no say in the matter. I chuckle. Yes, that is true, I say. I reach for Maureen's hand and stand. She stands and follows me. I walk her to the front door of our cottage. We step outside and Michal follows us. I point to a stone fence that is not far from my cottage door. It divides my land. After Father Brady's death, Una stayed with us and Michal was born months later. Two months after his birth, you were born. At first we all lived together because money was short, but gradually we began to double everything. It took us almost seven years. First we had to build a second cottage and then another chicken coop. We added to our hens and divided them evenly between us. Soon we each had a milking cow and enough sheep to divide the flock. Once we had completed these tasks, the land was divided into two plots. Your dog built a stone divider between our land and Una's, I say. I smile at Maureen. Grandmother Brady and I insisted that she take half of everything that was Father Brady's inheritance. We also insisted that she call herself Mrs. Brady. That is why Michal's name is Brady, I add. I squeeze Maureen's hand. She looks up at me and gives me a broad smile. 
I look back at me hall and then return my attention to the stone fence. You two share a very special legacy. All of the truths that we possess belong to us. They are not secret things or shameful things. They are truths revealed. They are for us to impart to our children and they to theirs for truth is eternal, everlasting to everlasting. All those things revealed belong to us, I conclude. Michal walks away from me. We both turn and watch him. Maureen looks at me with a curious and inquisitive smile. Michal returns soon with Shannon. They are both carrying stone hammers. They walk to the dividing stone wall and begin to tear it down. I glance at Maureen. Una and I hope that one day you and Michal would give us a reason to tear down that stone wall, I say. Her smile broadens again. She dashes away from me and returns soon with a smaller hammer. She joins Shannon and Michal as they tear down the dividing wall. The End I hope you have enjoyed this recording of All Those Things Revealed. Stay tuned for Season 2, which begins in one week's time. Season 2 will be a completely new Irish story titled By Our Own Hands. Both stories are available in Kindle format and paperback at www.amazon.com. Thank you for listening.